0: We are in uh, week five of Seize the Moment, uh, and so this is, uh, we're looking at the uh, the book of Ephesians written to the church at Ephesus. So, uh, Paul is writing this letter, and I just, I have to say that, you know, Paul is a, uh, uh, you know, I, I mention this pretty regularly, that that he's a pretty Tough guy, sometimes, right? Uh, uh, Paul is a guy who he can be kind of kind of sweet, but he can also come pretty firm with what it is that he is trying to communicate. There is just a he is writing from a position of of being personally, I think, encouraged by what he's seeing at, at the. At, from the church in Ephesus that, that this is a church that really is doing things in a positive way. There's, there's, there are things being done well here. And so when we are looking into just this writing, we are seeing Paul kind of exhort them and encourage them and even speak to what's happening in his own life and how he himself is being led to continue to pray for them. And just a few things that we've touched base on through this message. Um, You know, Paul speaks blessing over them. And I just, I encourage you to try to make this like a part of your week. Like what would it look like to just speak a blessing over somebody? I'm going to go and tell you, it will probably feel really awkward if it's not something that you do regularly but just encouraging somebody by speaking a blessing. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord be with you. Like those words, like we want to hear that stuff, right? But Paul, writing to a group of people who are not in total chaos and falling apart, he's actually saying like, like, I just pray that the Lord's blessing continue to be on you. And then he goes into this idea to remind them, you really have got to know who you are right? How are you going to be able to continue to function and do well in the kingdom if you don't know who you are? And then pray for the saints. Pray for people who are doing well. Don't exclusively let your time of prayer be built around praying for those who are suffering, right? Yes, we can pray for those who are suffering, those who are in need, but it is, it is actually probably good to pray for people and keep them in prayer long before they get to a place where they are at desperation. So, I've titled today's message, as we jump into chapter three, Define the Terms. Now, if you've been around my family for any period of time over the years, this has been something that's really been big for us, and we implement this idea of defining the terms in our home uh, when uh, we, we realized a long time ago that the, that the kids could be using a word with one definition while we were using the word with a completely different definition and we'd be having a conversation and we wouldn't be talking about the same thing. Now, I I gotta tell you, some of this happens naturally. I say this all the time, that that words just kind of take on new meanings and some of this happens with some manipulation there is some uh, malice engaged in the process of changing the definition of words uh, and, and so this 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 can happen naturally though I just I just want to say that um, uh, I have been guilty in here and I've shared this many times of using words that meant one thing to me and meant something different to somebody else uh, in fact a word I won't use right now that was just not inappropriate for me was wildly inappropriate for another person. And I used it in a sermon and they were like, why is Pastor Jim using profanity from the platform? And and when you looked it up, you were able to faithfully see in the in the dictionary that both definitions were were listed there as uses of the word. Now we live in a day, and I'm gonna talk about the malice of it, to where literally a word can be used in a public setting, right? And a declaration of how that word should be defined can be made. And we have in the last 12 months seen dictionaries go in the day of and change a definition right there on the spot. And that creates a level of malice. Now, is that a malice falling from an individual, or is it a spiritual malice? I'm definitely going to say spiritually malice is intended. I, 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 I'm a little bit slower to try to assign malice to an individual. If somebody doesn't know Jesus, they don't love Jesus, they're not serving Jesus, then whatever they're doing is serving things that are not Jesus-centered. So uh, I, I tell my kids all the time, you know, my, my, my friends, my family, I say, you know, why would we expect sinners not to sin? right? Why do we expect the loss not to be lost? So we shouldn't heap expectations on people uh, that that they should live some moral lifestyle if they don't accept the moral law of Scripture. So that being said, defining the terms is really, really important, and Paul does a really good job at this in his writings in general, and, and so we're going to kind of have to define some terminology if we're going to understand exactly what it is that he's communicating in these next verses. So, we'll begin here in chapter 3, verse 14, and he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. So, what is Paul communicating? He is beginning a prayer. And, um, and I, I just have got to say this, like this is the second prayer that we've seen here in the book. Uh, There is something that is so difficult in the church uh, when it comes to prayer, right? Um, It's one of the reasons why that we've had uh, Pastor Ruben coming up and reading scripture and praying, and it's not to be the the like, hey, this is the, the pyrotechnics part of the show where everything's exploding and lots of fun. It's about the fact that we really struggle with the scripture, which is a foundational part of the faith, and we struggle with prayer. And, and, and why would I say that? Well, I'll tell you that if I have a prayer meeting, right, it, I, that's the smallest crowd I'm going to get for the year. 21 days of prayer, and we're going to have prayer on Saturdays here from 10 to 12. That is going to be the smallest crowd of any event that we have showing up to spend an hour praying. Now, I'm not saying that to condemn you. Or maybe you're feeling some conviction in that. But I, I'm telling you, like, the idea around prayer is a difficult thing. So I, I love the fact that, that Paul is going to enter into a second prayer in so much as what we would call three chapters. He's writing out this letter, and he's going to enter into a second prayer. Prayer is so important Prayer is such an instrumental part of the faith, and it's something that we should be working up to being able to do, to be in a place where we can pray and pray for more than 30 seconds, that we can be engaged in the conversation with God. So, what does he say here? He says, for this reason... And so, where we've been breaking as we teach, there's these little sections that we find within the letter, and he is entering in, and he says, for this reason. So, what is this reason? Well, he has laid out the case that Gentiles are now welcome into the true Israel. Paul is very clear in stating that there really are only two groups of people. There's not this breakdown in the kingdom of all the different races and all the different genders and all the different, you know, economic standings. There is literally those people who are saved and those people who are not saved. That's how God sees it. Right. And so he's been laying this case out as he's been exhorting that that we as the body of Christ are one group of people. And the true Israel now consists of more than just those that were by physical earthly birth brought into it. Let's go back to verse 13, where uh, Jim McLean wrapped up last week, and he said, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. So Paul is in prison while he is writing this letter, and and he, he is assuming that they understand this, that the word on the street is Paul has been arrested. So, he's writing this letter, and he says this. He says, hey, we are one brotherhood, sisterhood, family in Christ. We are unified, and that's that. And he says, so because we are all brothers and sisters, and God is king, he is father, he says, I ask you not to lose heart. Why? Because if somebody that I'm really close to ends up in prison, right, that, that can be, that, that, that could be disheartening, right? Especially if I believe that they didn't do the, anything that deserves the prison sentence. And he says, don't lose heart because what I'm suffering, this is your glory. And that's a really confusing type of language, right? Hey, I'm in prison and that's your glory. I'm suffering right now, and that is your glory. So what he says here is that Paul's sacrifice reflects glory onto them. Why? Because the faith is such that he is willing to suffer. And when the body of Christ takes on this position of, I believe with such fervency, with such such determination, that I am willing to suffer, it makes the body of Christ look glorious. Because who is willing to suffer for a cause? And what does he say? He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. And and this this is indicative of a posture of humility that he says he bows his knees. Um, So I want to just break down this for a moment, this idea of bowing the knees, what it communicates. The first thing that bowing the knee uh, communicates is total submission, okay? So, it's an odd salvation that does not practice humility, right? So, he says, I bow the knee. What does he say? He says, I am lowering myself. Why? Because I am submitted to one who rules over me, I'm submitted to this, and I, I think about this, uh, the, 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 the imagery I think that comes to mind for me is that of like a king and the idea of taking a knee before the king, and there are really these, these two different mentalities when it comes to taking the knee. One comes out of respect, right, which falls into this category, and the other comes out of fear right? And this is what we get when when the scripture says that one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. You're like, man, how is that going to happen? Well, because it's going to be out of one of two camps, right? Either it's going to be out of the fact that, man, I am submitted to God. He is my king. I love him. All hell the king. And I bow my knee to the king. Or it's going to be, I am in total panic, afraid, fearful because the king is real and I have been disrespecting him. And if he finds out, I don't know what will happen. And so you'll have two groups of people there bowing their knees, but every knee bows. Total submission. The second thing here is from willing service, right? Totally submitted, but willing to serve. Acts 9 all right. When Paul comes into this position of becoming saved, the first thing that he asks is, what would you have me do? So he is somebody who is hunting down Christians, wanting to see them imprisoned, wanting to see them killed. And then he comes face to face with Jesus and he gets saved and he says, what would you have me to do? This is the position that you take when you bend the knee The third here, surrendered obedience. Luke 6, 46, why call me Lord and not do what I say, right? So there is being submitted to him. I acknowledge that he is king, right? But obeying his edicts, the things that he says, that's, that's another level. And when we come and we bow our knee before the Lord, we are coming to a place where we go, okay, God, if you said it, and I'm submitted to you, and I want to know what it is that you're asking of me, then I'm going to do it, right? This is, is, again, probably something that's complicated for us because there are probably things in our lives that we feel like we've got control over, we've got figured out, and we know that at the very least through Scripture— Uh, God has instructed us to do things differently, yet we do them our own way sometimes. And Jesus asks this question here. He says, why call me Lord and not do what I say? The fourth is unconditional repentance. No excuses, nothing hidden. I come and I bow my knee before the Lord because I acknowledge that he is right and I am wrong. And so I come to a place of unconditional repentance. And the last one here is acknowledged security. So we have a father, we have a protector, we have a savior. I bow my knee to the king because I understand that in the king's courts, I am safe. That in the king's presence, I am protected. And so Paul begins this thing. He says, he says for this reason, I bow my knees to the Lord. Entering into a posture of humility as he does what? As he begins to speak to him. Verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. This was kind of interesting for me uh, looking at this word family here. So, uh, I was reading through some of the commentaries and there's this consensus that trying to define family properly here is really difficult in the English okay? And that is because of the way that we uh, in Western civilization view family. So, this word here in the Greek, patria, for family, is lineage, ancestry, tribe. It is from the root, uh, which is pater, which is fatherhood, all right? This is where we get the term paternity, right? So, They take this concept of fatherhood and their understanding is family and fatherhood are connected. And Western civilization, especially more and more today, kind of this this more modern thought is, well, fatherhood's not really necessary inside of family, right? And so, we'll hear things being taught, being discussed, being proclaimed, that family is just whoever you feel like you can be connected with, you could do life with, you could be from all over the place. But, but the, the Jewish understanding of this, right, Paul's not even thinking in these terms like, well, you know family is really just whatever you make of it. No, no, no. There's a fatherhood that is just, this is adjoined to the idea of family. So, you don't have family without the father. And so, this this picture here for us is something that is difficult because if we just take it kind of in our own definition, right? And we just go from whom every family, there becomes this kind of like disconnected, like whoever the group is. But what Paul's saying is, is that for everybody that's connected to the Father in heaven and on earth is named. And so, Uh, rabbis would use the term patria for family to reference the angelic creation or Israel. So there were two different types of family that they recognized with the same father. So fatherhood being synonymous to all of this, and so you had this angelic, this 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 part of creation that we do not interact with or engage with on a regular basis, uh, and then you have those that are the children of God. They have the favor of God on their lives. They make up the family, and so sometimes the rabbis, because they wanted to make sure that they weren't just using family in this generic term that would have coordinated everybody underneath the fatherhood of God. They would divide that up and talk about the heavenly family or the family of Israel. And so Paul says, "Hey, that all of all of those that declare God as being father fall underneath this umbrella. Now, verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So he says, I bow my knee uh, to, the, to, the, to, the, to the creator of all things, right? That we as a family, both in the heavens and here on earth, who have a centralized father, that are according to the riches of his glory. So what are the riches of his glory? Well, by God's very eternal and limitless nature, he has all that is needed. So by God's nature, the picture here is that his riches are not like the way that we measure riches, right? We look at who are the wealthiest people on earth, and you know, uh, it's, it's interesting, right? Because right now we've got a really uh, famous wealthy person who's going through a divorce, right? And some of the articles I've read are questioning, will he, will he still be one of the richest men on the planet once he goes through the divorce because half of his assets go to her and then all of a sudden does he lose that that status right like, like we're, we're measuring in earthly terms and Paul's going like it's it's beyond that it doesn't really matter like kingship and lordship and you've got a governor and a mayor and the tax collectors are pretty well none of that that wealth isn't the same this is limitless right So the riches that God has, they are limitless. And he says, according to those riches that he may grant you to be strengthened. Meaning that he has all that is needed, all the resources that are needed to strengthen you. And that may be lacking in a thousand other relationships you have on this planet, but it's never lacking in a relationship with Him, that, he, that, that you may be strengthened. And I just take a, a moment here and look at strengthened. That is to be empowered. It is specifically the way the New Testament writers use this is a spiritual firmness, meaning that, that like, like it is a spiritual thing that has happened, and I am now strong. Like I am decided in my faith. And and what does he say? He says, strengthen with power through His Spirit in your inner being." So this is much more than getting the T-shirt that got handed out on Sunday or the coffee cup because you visited. Like, look, yeah, I I I go to church at so and so, and I'm a Christian. No, no, no. Paul wants to make sure that we understand that this is not like a hey, an you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, you get a passing grade because you attended, right? And this is something that is happening inside, right? This is something that's happening on that, on that inner being. And, and if we pause for a moment, right? And, we just, and we're just honest, right? That inner being, is that, that's the place that we're the most scared of, right? Because if, if people in here knew some of the thoughts that go through our mind, if people in here knew some of the, the things that we have maybe done, right? I mean, there, there's something that helps us feel safe because it's like, well, nobody knows that part of me, so I might not have to deal with it. I can put on a facade. People can believe that I'm a good person. And, and I, maybe I really am a good person, but this inner being transformation, right? This is, what, this is what Paul is kind of gonna build into here in his prayer. He is praying and he says, I am coming and I am in a position right now of prayer and what am, who am I praying to? I'm praying to this God that is the father of the family of Christ, of all that call themselves believers, sons and daughters in the heavens, on earth. And he has limitless resources To strengthen you where? In your inner being, that place that needs to be transformed. And this is why when we talk about salvation, right, we say, Jesus says, believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you will be saved. It's because there's there's two parts to this, right? Like, I can mentally get it, right? And I can just in my mind go, oh, yeah, like, I want to be a Christian, but something has to happen inside. And this is the the, the Hebrew idea of the heart. Like this is the, the essence of who I am, this inner being. And so if I believe inside of who I am, like if in that deep part of me where all the chaos exists, right? where all the lies that I've been told from the world around me that I've accepted and kind of buried in and made them a part of who I am, if I can, if I can come to grips in there with the fact that I need Jesus in this space, and he's going he's gonna to go deeper into this in just a moment, that I need Jesus here, right? Then, then that will become an overflow. It will become an outflow of who I am. And he says, through his spirit in your inner being. And so the spirit of God being deep into this territory that no one else is familiar with. This place of vulnerability, this place that really, honestly, I don't know that I feel safe letting anybody into And and Paul says, like, like, hey, what's happening for us? And the reason that we're effective as a church is that we now have the Spirit in this inner place. Verse 17: So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, and and we're going to pause on this for a moment, that so that Christ may dwell. So there are two forms of dwelling when we are looking at Hebrew culture, and this is important. uh, they talk about living in community, one, as a guest, or two, as a resident. And so you can you can live in community, right? And you can be a guest, or you can live in community and you can be a resident. And And Paul is using language here saying that when the Holy Spirit is not a guest, like, oh, it's Sunday, you know, I'm gonna do my thing, I'm gonna come in, I'm super hyped about it, but... Monday, I got to go to class, I got to go to work, and I really don't need to bring all that with me because we've got a policy on the books, or it makes me uncomfortable, or whatever your reason is, right? right? So, the difference between is Christ coming in as a guest, like today's the day that I'm serving Christ, but tomorrow I've got to handle things, or does He become a permanent resident? Is He given citizenship inside, in that inner place, right? So, it takes the strength from the Holy Spirit for Christ to be a permanent resident, to be a permanent resident. It takes the strength of Christ. Why? What is he saying? Think about it. On my own, my own sinful nature, I am not capable of allowing Christ to be a resident inside of me because on my own, I'm just going to keep going back to garbage, right? I'm going to keep going back to whatever it is that's my thing. So I need the strength of Christ. I need Him to be a permanent resident and do some work inside of me. I need Him to be, to be manifest inside of me and doing some house cleaning, but also some maintenance, if you, if you buy a house, right, and you buy a house and you go through that whole process, if you're a homeowner, you know what I'm talking about. Like in the buying process, that's where you're making your list, right? And you go to the, to the seller and you're like, look, I'm going to buy it for this price, but I want this done, this done, this done, right? I can, I can evaluate looking at the house what needs to be done inside of it for it to be right. But once we live inside of the house, do we continue to maintain it? And what we find is that a lot of people don't. And then when they get ready to sell their house, and now they're the seller, the buyer is going, hey, all this deferred maintenance, the stuff you didn't do, I'm going to either need some money so that I can do it, or you need to do it. And what, what happens here, this strength from the Holy Spirit, is that this is allowing God to be the handyman that's doing, taking care of the things that you naturally would defer on. I'll break this down a little bit more. Let's look at these verses together, though, for a moment in some context. That according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Holy Spirit, through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That He will allow you as the family to have the Spirit in you so that Christ can dwell in your hearts. Now, the question that really comes to mind is, is my heart an environment in which Christ feels like a resident or a guest. You know, the, the, the kind of the language we use, uh, uh, you know, make yourself at home, right? Mikasa sukasa. su casa. Somebody comes over, and we're like, hey, whatever's in the fridge, help yourself. You know, you're, when you're here, your family. Like, that's great language, right? Okay. Can I tell you, when somebody says, help yourself, I don't help myself, Right? They're like, whatever's in the fridge, go grab it. Like, I think to myself, I'm going to grab the one thing in the fridge that they didn't remember was in there, and then they're going to be like, oh, oh, I've been saving that for a special occasion. Right? Like, it takes more than just like, some, you know, a little sign on the wall or a little doormat when you're coming in to make somebody feel like, man, I'm really at home right now. And, and culturally, that, that's kind of driven into Western culture right? I mean, we love our space, and I'm not going to lie to you. I love my space, right? I love to know that I have a place where I can go, and I don't have to do anything for anybody. That really doesn't exist in my life right now, but I love the idea of it, right? You know, somebody's like, how was vacation? And that's a complicated question, right? It was incredible, but are we talking about, like, are, do you have the idea that when I went on vacation that I went, you know, to some exotic beach somewhere and sat and watched crystal blue clear water and under the shade and people were pampering me? Or do you understand that I was pushing kids around an amusement park, standing in line in 90-degree weather for an hour and a half while spending all my money on drinks and souvenirs? You know what I'm saying? Like, like, like it's, it's an idea, right? And it was definitely a vacation for somebody in my group. You know what I'm saying? Now, I would do it a thousand times over, right? Because it brings fulfillment. But I love the idea of having this, like, like, place, you know? But does it really exist? And so, in order for, for, for my heart to be a place where Christ is, like, welcome to become a resident, there are a few things that I have to do, Right? There are concessions that have to be made in my life, and, and there's some prep work for that. And you know that, that it takes a little bit of time for that to become this thing that's navigated and becomes true in my life? Part of the problem that we have is, is uh, when it comes to confession, right? So that inner being place, right, the place where Christ is going to dwell, where the Holy Spirit is going to kind of like, like take up and call home, Um, Those things that are inside of there that take up all the space and make it hostile for the Holy Spirit, those are things that, this is why scripture says, confess your sins that you will be saved one to another, right? This idea of confession, and confession is really difficult. Confession is difficult for kids, right? I I, I don't know what it is, And, and maybe your kids are better than my kids at this, you know, but... I can be talking with my kids about something wrong that they've done and and they love to point out exactly how all the other like circumstances that made them do wrong exist and they struggle with going like, "Oh, you're right, dad. I I didn't even see that." Like do you understand like I try to tell my kids, "You know how simple life would be if I was like, "Hey, did you eat the last ice cream bar and you just went I guess I did yeah that was me instead of going well maybe but you don't know how many my brother had my your your other son over here had three of them I I don't I didn't ask that question I don't care right Or, or or does anybody else have a problem with empty boxes being left in the pantry or the fridge right it's like who took the last one and left the trash here and instead of going, oh, that must have been me, it's like looking around. So I, I think that it's natural, right, to have a pro, the struggle with confessing and just going like I did that. Now, I, I want to tell you that, that owning this idea of confession has revolutionized my life. Like, I, I, man, I messed that up. Like, that was me. It has made me a better husband. It has made me a better dad being able to just go like, I did that wrong and I need you to know that, right? That's, that's a big part of, of repentance and apologizing, right? It's not just going like, I'm sorry because you need to hear those words come out of my mouth so I'm going to say them, right? Because there's, there's nothing there with that. Confession is, hey, I got that one wrong. I got that one wrong, and I I see that it hurt you, and that wasn't my intent, and I'm really sorry about that, and I don't want to get it wrong, so I'm gonna do it better next time. And if you see me not doing it better next time, you have permission to be like, hey, remember that time you did that thing? I feel like you're doing it again. That's that's that picture of confession. Look, David in Psalm 139 he, he's at a place where he's just confessing it all, right? And this is what he says at the end of it. He says here in verse 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, right? So he says, God, I, I'm just giving you permission right now, not just to be God when I need something, right i'm saying like right now i don't know that i'm in a place of need but i want you to come in and search me like if there are things in my life that are not honoring you i want you to come in and begin to get into my heart i want you to get into my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting see if there's any wickedness any evil inside of me anything that dishonors you because that impacts everything in my life it impacts, it impacts my eternity so, come and, and, and evaluate that, right? And so, what David has done is some pretty bad stuff, and David is going to have to learn how to confess what it is that he has done. And so, God will allow us to go through some really difficult seasons to help us learn this lesson, because when we don't learn this lesson, can I tell you, not learning confession in your life does not just impact you, it impacts everything around you. And it's not just kids that have a problem with confession. Adults have a problem with confession as well. I was thinking about some examples of this, and one of them that kind of just uh, populated in my news feed this week uh, that I thought about, and it just kind of bothered me, was, you know, when we were at the beginning of the pandemic, right, you had all these videos going around from experts talking about what they knew to be true and there was a series of videos that people shared with me that hey there's a chance that the virus started in this lab in wuhan not from bat soup or or or, or whatever and that was immediately labeled a conspiracy theory and you had all the fact checkers you know what i'm talking about um they're the they're the people who fact check. I don't know how to describe it. It's chaos. Um, and they were like, this is false. This is proven false. this is proven false. And one of those was a group called PolitiFact. I don't know anything about them. I'm not here to talk about them. But what was interesting is, is that now there is actually more and more reports coming out that it actually might be the case. I don't know if it's the case or not. But this is what's crazy to me, is that instead of as, a, as an organization going, hey, we might have gotten this wrong. What the article was, was groups like PolitiFact are just deleting their fact checks. They're not even going like, hey, we fact checked it and we might have gotten it wrong and we just want to make sure that you can trust us. Like when we get it wrong, we're going to let you know. They just deleted it like it never existed. And, and this, is, this, this is what I'm getting at, is that when this type of stuff is happening, it breeds distrust. And it puts, it puts people on sides of lines. But when, you, when we can trust each other and we can go, hey, I got that one wrong. Like, I really believed this thing, but I was wrong, and I'm sorry about that. Like, that type of confession brings trust. And so, in order for our hearts to be a place where, where, where God can reside, there's got to be some there's got to be some work that's got to be done, and, and there are some things that are inside that, that probably need to be confessed, and they, and they might be difficult to confess, and I'm not asking you to come up here and grab the microphone and be like, all right, here we go. It's testify time. I'm going to freak everyone out, but it's going to be good. No, I'm talking about the people that are in your life that you're closest with. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's a counselor. Maybe it's sitting down with a, a pastor, but learning how to go, hey, I got this thing wrong in my life, and I don't want to do that anymore. Right? We are then doing the work internally in our hearts so that the the Spirit of God can now be manifest and dwell where as a resident inside of us. And watch what he does here. He says, being rooted and grounded in love, right? Rooted and grounded. These are adjectives that describe stability and difficulty. What do the roots do, right? The roots are what keep that tree from just blowing over every time a wind comes across. Right? The root system, they, they are what keep it anchored down. And this idea of being, being stable, right? Being stable and, and, and rooted and grounded, stable in what? In love. And this is the big one. This is the defining the terms moment that, that, really, that really impacts what Paul's talking about. Why? Well, for us culturally today, because this word right here, this word is everywhere it's on yard signs, it's on t-shirts, there were masks that that had love uh, uh, is universal. When I was at Universal Studios, like love is a term that has some pretty interesting definitions wrapped around it right now. And uh, I went to Google uh, and I looked it up. And so in its noun form, it is an intense feeling of deep affection. In its verb form, it is uh, to feel a deep romantic or sexual attachment to someone. Now, I got to tell you that I gave pause here because I thought to myself, like, I love my mom. I do not love my mom. You know, you know what I'm saying? Like, 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 I love some of you. I do not love some of you. So this can't be an accurate definition. I mean, just logically, if I begin to try to apply this into the relationships I have in my life, I would go, this doesn't work, right? Now, I love my wife. And this is good news. I'm a pastor. I don't love anybody else in my life, (laughs) So, so this has got to be wrong, right? I mean, this, you can't apply this to what, what Paul's talking about, right? Is Paul assuming that, like, this love that exists is like this idea of sexual attachment? No, not at all. In fact, Paul, when he's writing to the church in Corinth, he breaks this down for us. He, he actually tells us how to identify whether or not it's love or whether it's not love. Watch what he says here in chapter 13, beginning in verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. We could stop on that verse right there, and I could just begin to disqualify a lot of quote-unquote love that I see represented and claimed in the world around me today. Hey, listen, I'm not trying to be mean. I just am saying to you that love itself, it actually has a definition and a meaning. There are attributes that are really attached to love. He goes on in verse 5, it's not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So what does he say? He says that you are When when Christ is dwelling in you, when he has taken up residence, you now are rooted and grounded. You're ready for the storm in what? Love. Because you're able to take everything else that's coming at you from the world around you, and you're able to apply it to that standard of, listen… I'm not going to be here to boast. I'm not going to be here to be rude, right? Because I have something inside of me that I know you desperately need. So, is it our love for him or his love for us that becomes this driving factor? Right? Because, I mean, I think we immediately read this idea of being rooted and grounded in love. Like, it's like, oh, it's our expression. But what if this rooted and groundedness isn't, because of our expression, what if it's because of His expression that He loves us, that He loves us even though we're sinners, even though we are messed up, even though we make mistakes, right? That He loved the world so much that He would even give His only Son. I think I would argue that it doesn't really matter which form or expression we're looking at here, The idea is that when love is being expressed by this biblical definition, like there's something transformative that's taking place. And so how you define love directly impacts your comprehension, how you understand things. This is where he goes with this. This is pretty powerful. Look at this. He says in verse 18, may have rooted and grounded in love that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth comprehend, right? That because you're rooted and grounded in love, you can now comprehend, right? And what does that mean? To seize or to possess. And this really brings me to this question that has been wrecking me lately, and that is, how do people not see truth? And then it makes me ask the question, am I seeing truth? Right? Because I can watch a video and listen to the words that come out of a person's mouth and then listen to somebody else go, well, that's not what they said. And it's like, well, but I heard them say it. Right? And then if I continue to believe that that's what they said, then there's all the like, you know, innuendos and names that come with that in this culture today. And it's like, hold on, so I'm this terrible person because I believe that a person said a thing that I heard them say, but I shouldn't believe that I heard them say it? And and I'm telling you, man, like like it can mess with your head. And, and for me, it, 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 it for a long time drove me to, you know, virtue signaling is what I call it, like just saying what I thought was going to make everybody in the room happy. And then I realized that the problem was is other people weren't really happy. They didn't care. You know, they were miserable, angry, grumpy people, regardless of what I was saying. And they just needed to, to check me off the box so they could go be mean to somebody else. And then I began to think, well, hold on just a second. I'm just creating an unsafe environment for people. So then I said, I'm not going to say the nice things anymore. I'm going to say the mean things. And then I found out that by saying the mean things, I was offending somebody else. And it makes me go like, where's the truth in the midst of all of this? Right? It's just Chaos. Verse 18, so in, that we will have the strength to comprehend with all the saints. This is, this is what was good. This is what's good about this, right? In trying to comprehend, and trying to discover, like possessing understanding with all the saints. This is the entirety of genuine believers. So this is what this tells us. The church should have some level of consensus. This is, a good, this is good for me right? I should be able to look at the church over the past 2,000 years, led by Jesus according to the Scriptures, and I should be able to go, hold on, the church isn't the problem, Right now, I'm not saying there aren't like splinter cells of churches that go out and do crazy things. That's why we're talking about the saints, right? As a whole, like there's this overarching thing. So when we have sound doctrine, theology that has been taught for 2,000 years, when somebody comes up and goes, "Oh, we've gotten it wrong for 2,000 years. I found a book under my bed, and it tells us all the new things God believes," we should be able to go, "Yeah, maybe not." Maybe a theme for a good Adam Sandler movie, but not for my Sunday morning experience with God. And so to comprehend, there's some type of consensus that must be taking place because I'm comprehending with who? All the saints. And so I'm not alone in gaining understanding. And what is it? It says here, it says with all the saints: what is the breadth and length and height and depth? You cannot understand the enormity of love without getting rooted and grounded in love. Man, it's like a circle, right? Like, like, you can sit here and talk about love all you want to talk about love, and you can say, I've got it all figured out, right? But until you are walking in love, you really don't know what you're talking about. This is why, like, I, I have famously always said, like, why would I listen to a 15-year-old pop singer tell me about love? right? Why, why? And so I certainly, I certainly would not in a romantic moment with my wife put on a 15-year-old singing about intimacy. You know what I'm saying? Like, like they don't know what they're talking about. And then I said that one time and somebody said, well, you're discounting their life experience. Yeah. <laughs> on point. I'm just saying that, like, like, to understand love requires a little bit. Like, like this, is, this takes a little bit of life. And I was just having this conversation yesterday. When, when, when I met Carmen, I was 13 years old. When we started dating, I was 16. We were engaged and married. We were 20. So we were young. And everybody in my life that cared about me set up a coffee, a breakfast, a lunch, a dinner, and I had... Dozens of these like one-on-one meetings with people going, you're really young. You might want to slow this thing down. And man, I was like, Psh, I am so much smarter than you are. I know what I'm doing. And you couldn't convince me otherwise. Now, I just I have to tell you something real quick. By the grace of God, by the grace of God, my wife and I have figured things out. Because I cannot tell you How many people that are young, that walk down that path, have no clue what they're getting ready for? I certainly did not. I certainly did not have any idea what I was getting myself into. And then it's all destroyed. And instead of having this, like, season of victory in their life, they look back and go, man, I was a train wreck at this point. And I I get it. Like, if if you're sitting here and you're like, oh, I know exactly what I'm doing with my, like, love, life, sexuality, expression of flower, blossom, whatever. Like, I get it. I can say it in any silly way and it's complicated. I could write out math equations, and there is a fair chance that you're going to go, no, 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 I've already got it figured out. And it's not until, like, all of a sudden you actually get a little taste of. Some of this that all, all of a sudden you begin to understand. And this is what he's saying here. He's saying that like, you're going to get rooted and grounded in love so that you can understand just how massive my love is. And you just, you're not going to understand it until you're in it, right? It's like, hey, here's a good analogy for you. If I take you to the ocean, right, and you have no concept of what an ocean is, and I take you to the beach and I'm like, hey, that water line out there, covers the majority of the planet. But you read an article from an ad on Instagram that told you that's not true, and you're going, no, 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 you're not convincing me, right? I totally know that as, I could swim across that easily, right? And, and now it's just my word against their word, and there are, somebody's telling lies, and then some people jump out into the water and they begin to swim going, well, I read, I could do this. And then all of a sudden they realize not only is that not happening, but there are things out there that want to eat you while you're trying. And that's, that's, that's part of this thing. It's like waking up to the fact that it's like, okay, you know what? There are people who have lived longer than I have. They've done things that I haven't done. They have some value to add to my life. Maybe if I really want success in my life, I'll pause and start listening. And can I tell you, like, when you learn that lesson, do you want me to tell you how long you apply it? I think until you die. And so at 42 years old, when somebody comes to me who I think has the experience, they have life experience that I don't have, I want to hear what they have to say. When it comes with how I manage my money, when it comes with how I manage my family, do you know that I have my first child is in college, right? I don't have it all figured out. So, if somebody else has gotten their kids all the way through college and they have something to say, I want to sip my coffee and listen. Because it's it's beginning to make sense, and that's what's happening here. So, some things need more than a written description for you to understand. Now, what does he say in verse 19? And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, right? Right? This love, it's enormous, it's it's immeasurable, and and the love of Christ, it surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. He uses this word know here, following where he was talking about comprehend, and that's because to comprehend means to seize, right? But to know is a prolonged knowledge. So, to comprehend it, I grab it. To know it, I stick it inside, and I apply it. And so, I'm going to begin comprehending God's love and how enormous it is, but I'm going to begin to know the love of Christ. It's going to get deep inside of me, and I'm going to know that it surpasses the knowledge of this world. You're right. Somebody says, I don't understand the love of Christ, and and your response is going to be yeah it's going to be really difficult cuz i don't understand it either it's way beyond anything that i grasp but i know that and so christ's view of love surpasses all that we know this is why jesus was able to go to the cross it's why he was able to pray the prayer god i really don't want to i really don't want to go through this but if it's your will i'll do it Why? Because he understood that love, the enormous scope of love, it was far beyond anything that any of us were going to be able to kind of stick a pin in. It's kind of like this, like a vessel that is connected to an abundant source. And so if you think about it, you have the abundant source, and then you get connected to it. And if you're not really connected, right, to where there's leaks and everything, you're never going to get that that vessel filled up because it's just going to keep splashing out. And the idea here is is that when you really understand, oh man, this is what it looks like to connect in, then you can get the abundant source. Now you're a part of the abundant source. And so you begin to have the abundance. And I'm wrapping up here, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. So now unto or until him, depending on your translation, meaning he is the end all, the ultimate final, like unto him, until we are at him, because getting to him, like that's the end. That's the goal that we have that is able to do right, depicting the place of salvation and the place of rekindling the faith, right? He is able to not just save those of you who do not know Jesus as Lord and Savior today, but he is able to rekindle the fire. Maybe you go, man, I got saved at this point and I was on fire, but right now with work and family and finances, like I just, I'm not feeling it. He is able to bring you back in to that place of excitement far more abundantly. This is a reference to an excess that we cannot empty. This is a picture of not, I think about uh, uh, DuckTales. Anybody watch the cartoon DuckTales when they were a kid, right? Uh, And I think they've redone it. Scrooge McDuck has a diving board and he dives into his safe and it's like this like giant vat of gold, right? And he'd dive and go swimming in it. And, you know, as a kid, you're like, that would kill you, wouldn't it, right? But, you know, plot convenience, right? If I were to take all that gold and I were to take buckets, I could eventually empty out that safe right? Even though it looked like an ocean of gold, right? There is no end to what God is capable of doing. You don't hit, it, there's no tap out. There's no end to it. It's not like God goes, listen, I've already given you all of this. I'm not giving you any more. Like God doesn't have a retirement to look out for. God doesn't have some special like boat that he's been saving up for. And it's like, if I give you any more, I won't get my boat. No, that's, that's not God. That's us, that's us. You know what I'm saying? And I'm not down in that. If you get a boat, I like boats. I'm just throwing that out there. Right? That's not God. There's an abundance there. All that we ask. So, it is not all that we can ask. And this is significant for us to understand. So, the things that we as saints petition the Lord for are led by the guidance of Scripture and the Spirit. So we don't just go, oh, well, God's got the access and I really want a Ferrari or whatever the cool car is for the day. I want my team to win in the big sports event. See, I just covered all of your athletic dreams right there. No, that's, that, those are not things that Scripture's leading us to be praying about and asking God, hey, now, God, I want you to do a work in my child's life. Boom, right? Those, those are not The things that we can ask, they're the things that we should be asking. And he is going, he has everything that's needed when we bring the petition to him to respond according to the power. So, in the saints and in the true church, inside of the saint and inside of the true church resides already a divine force capable in itself of the miraculous. So, when we get saved... The divine force of God, right, it already is there. The problem is experiencing it doesn't require something new, but instead a fuller application of what is already there. This power... This is, this is why Jesus said, you'll see even greater things because I go to sit at the right hand of the Father because the Holy Spirit inside of you, that is the empowerer. So that power is limitless and it's inside of you, inside of the saint, it's inside of the church. And it's not that we need a new thing, right? It's not that we need something different. It's that we need to learn how to apply what God has already put inside of us. And he ends this prayer here in verse 21, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And so, the reasons for giving God glory are found in the church. Look at this. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. So, We can find reasons to give God glory right here in our church community, right? And in Christ who saved the saints. And there's just this, there's this emphasis that Paul is finishing this entire, these first three chapters are what they call part one of Ephesians, and he's finishing this by saying, man, the church, you need to understand, you need to unlock what potential sets in the church, right? You need to understand just how important the church is. God's doing something in it. So for how long? For how long is God's glory residing in the church and in the saints, right? Throughout all generations forever and ever, forever and ever. So that's, that's, that's beyond the new earth and the new heaven. Like, the church and the saints will continue. I don't even know what that looks like, Right? Jesus has established a new kingdom, a new heaven, new earth, right? And, and all of the, the, the things that come with that, and it's, it's amazing. And yet, somehow, he is continuing to be glorified through us. And, and to, who's he being glorified to? Who's looking at the saints and the church forever and ever after this earth has gone and looking and going, man, God is glorious? Somebody. So, the Holy Spirit through Paul is using the strongest and most descriptive language he can to help us understand just how much God loves the church and the saints. God loves us, and we can't even tap into understanding a fraction of how much that love is and what that love looks like until we make our hearts ready for him. And so when he dwells in us, the reality that is infinitely above us then resides in us. And so the infinite possibility that God brings to the table lies manifest in you when you have him residing in you. When he is a part of your decision-making am i going to watch that movie am i going to listen to that song am i going to go to that party am i am i going to take that am i going to do this am i am i going to act like that am i going to talk like that like when all of those questions are being answered with god kind of streamlined in the middle of it you begin to go yeah there's something inside of me that's transformed and then with that comes unlimited potential Let's stand to our feet. It's important to define the terms because if we do not define the terms and we allow somebody else to, this whole prayer, this ending to this thought for Paul is completely flipped on its head. And instead of it being about the way we interact with God and God's capability, it becomes about how we interact with each other. And can I tell you, we need to be interacting properly with God long before we try to figure out how we better interact with one another. So I want to pray for you, and like we said uh, during worship, if you want prayer, our prayer ministry team will be in the back. Uh, uh, they will pray with you. We are there to to be an encouragement. If you do not know Jesus as Lord of your life, man, it is a it is it is a journey. It is a a beautiful, beautiful moment in your life to make that decision and jump into the journey of being a believer. You know, John chapter 10 verse 10 says that the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I came that you could have life and have it to the fullest. And my whole life I grew up with people going like, You know, hey, if you were to leave here today and die in a fiery car crash, would you go to heaven or go to hell, right? And so for me, salvation was always built around like, hey, I've got to get this thing figured out so that I can die and go to heaven. But the scripture doesn't say that. That word life there in John 10.10 is life as it begins today, life as God intended. And so being a Christian is a good way to die, but it's a better way to live. Following Christ and letting him be Lord of your life it'll come in handy if you can pull that pink slip out at the pearly gates, right? But it'll do you more good if you start using it now. So if you want to know Jesus, we want to be a part of sharing that with you. If you have any other needs in your life, we want to pray with you. But know this, God loves you right where you're at. And if you'll begin to receive that, it'll open up your understanding to what love is. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we are so thankful for your word, for your truth, thank you that uh, it, it, it speaks truth not to uh, a generation a thousand years ago, but to us today as well. Lord, I just thank you that your word is consistent. It did the same work for my granddad that it does for me. It did the same work in, in, in those that have come thousands of years before us that it does even now in my life. And so, Lord, I want to know your word. I want to know your truth. I want to know your love that passes all understanding. We love you and we praise you, Lord. Have your way in our lives this week. In your mighty name, amen, amen. We love you guys. As always, go change your world.